A brief review on what we have been doing. If you'll remember, we are trying to put together a unified framework of the Bible. And we're using this pattern of the kingdom of God, which is unfolding gradually throughout the scriptures. We're seeing, we've been tracing this, we're trying to simplify, which is hard for me. We're trying to simplify and say, we've been saying that God's kingdom is made up of God's people in God's place under God's rule. And if you're under God's rule, you get God's blessing. That's the pattern. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we've said that God has worked in history through progressive revelation. That's one of our fancy words, right? But it's not that hard. God is revealing himself. He's revelating himself progressively, gradually. There's more of him we have not yet seen. I do not know all the details of how all the end times are going to pan out, right? But we know a lot of how he has revealed himself in the past. And we've got to be really careful because since God is unfolding himself and his plan progressively, we need to pay attention to that progression. That's what we have been saying. We don't want to flatten the Bible. We don't want to, we don't want to only read it as if we're reading it through the lens of Christ. But we need to recognize that it unfolds. In the first week, uh, and we're seeing eight phases of how this unfolds. The first week, we saw the pattern of the kingdom, which is in the garden, right? This is Genesis 1 and 2. Eden is, the, is, the, is where we see the world, how God created, how God intended it to be. God's people were Adam and Eve, and they lived in God's place, which is the Garden of Eden, and they were with God. And they were under his rule. And so they enjoyed his blessing. It said they walked with God. They had all that they needed right there. God provided for them all that they needed. And remember, to be under God's rule is to enjoy God's blessing. We have great reason to obey him. You can always trust that obeying God will lead to blessing in your life. Not immediately sometimes. Christ obeyed and was murdered. David obeyed and fled from Saul, right? Not immediately, but blessing in the long run. God's original creation shows us a model of his kingdom. That's what we saw in week one in the pattern of the kingdom. In week two, we saw the perished kingdom. The good kingdom in Eden was dying. It was being destroyed by sin. We saw how God's people, Adam and Eve, decided that life would be better if they could live independent from God. And as you know, the results were disastrous. They were, Adam and Eve, at the end of this, are no longer God's people. They have turned away from him, and so he turns away from them. And they are now banished outside of God's place, and they're not under God's rule. So they don't enjoy God's blessing. They experience curse. Remember, that's the key word in Genesis 3.15. If you don't, if you're not under God's rule, you will only experience curse. God's judgment, which is death and punishment. We trace the effects of sin and the curse through the first couple chapters of Genesis. We saw that, we saw how God was grieved over the world. And he was terribly saddened by what mankind was doing to it. So we 
see that God's people are no longer in God's place and they have rejected his rule and now they don't enjoy his blessing because they're under judgment. But we begin to get glimmers of grace. In week three, we come to the promised kingdom. Suppose the key text here, I don't know, I can't pick a key text, Genesis 3.15 and then the, I guess the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis uh, 12.15 and 17. But we saw, we traced some of these key themes of grace before the primary things we were seeing were sin and judgment. It's the key, those are the main things we were seeing. But then in beginning in Genesis 3, we begin to see hope and grace We have the promise of the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15. If you remember how God promised that he's going to send one through the seed of a woman who will, his heel will be bruised by the serpent, but he's going to crush his head, right? And it's an early picture of the gospel. We also come to the covenant of Noah, which is in Genesis 6 and 9. And if you remember the covenant with Noah, what happened was God was so saddened by the state of the world. It says that God looked down and saw that the intention of man's heart was evil all the time. And so God decided to uncreate the world with the flood. We saw him reversing the separation of the water and the land. I think that's the trick. We saw God uncreating the world through the flood and through judgment. But God selected one man and his family, not because he was righteous, but because of God's grace. And he preserved Noah. And if you remember, uh, at the end of the flood, God gave a sign. He made a covenant with Noah and he made a sign. He, made a, he gave a covenant sign. You remember what the sign was? It was a bow. The point there was not simply that God isn't going to destroy the world again with a flood. I mean, that that part's important. But the key thing is God is going to live with sinners for a time. The rainbow reminds us, I saw a monster one this week. God is putting down his bow. It is not aimed at us as if his wrath is going to snap in a moment. But God is willing to live with sinners for a time. That's what the bow reminds us of. But then we come to the covenant with Abraham, which is so central to the Bible. We said that, I've been thinking about this, and I'd like to tweak it, but I won't do it tonight. We saw how so much of the Bible is the explaining and the unfolding of God's covenant with Abraham. If you remember, there are three parts of that promise. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, that he's going to give him a people And he's going to give them a land, and he's going to use them to be a blessing to all the world. It's the Abrahamic covenant. This sounds very similar to what we've been talking about. And really what he's doing, it's so interesting because the Abrahamic covenant comes right after the Tower of Babel. Right? You remember? So even after the flood, man still rebels against God. And so God scatters them. He creates nations. Or right after the Tower of Babel, God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to unscatter. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make one people. And in them, they're going to bless the whole world. That's the promise to Abraham. In week chapters 4 and 5, this is where we are now. It's where we were last time. We only got through part of it because we're covering like 12 or 
14, maybe 15 books of the Bible, um, we begin to see the partial kingdom. God is beginning to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And I say partially because it's a partial fulfillment. In some ways he fulfills it fully, but in other ways it is incomplete as we'll see tonight. We have organized this. I don't know if I have a, I don't have a slide for this. We had it last week. We've, we've kind of grouped Genesis 12 all the way up through 2 Chronicles into four categories of God's people and then God's rule and then God's place. And then we are expanding it a little bit to God's king, which we will discuss tonight. A lot of my notes are clipped. That's okay. All right, so we, uh, we are seeing how God's people are the Israelites. God has made for himself a people. This people was enslaved, but God established his people in Israel, and he delivered them, and he brought them into the wilderness where he, the Bible says that he, in Exodus 19, that he brought them up on eagles' wings, and he made them his people. They were his people, because you can't be a people if you're enslaved. And God brought them out into the wilderness. And if God is going to be with his people, if, he, if they have to be back under his rule and back under his blessing. So God establishes the law, the Ten Commandments, and the, and, and the, and the Mosaic Covenant, or the, the covenant with Israel. And then we saw through the temple and the ark that God once again dwelt among his people. Do you remember? So God is coming back with his people. So last time we talked about God's people. So now it's, we see that it's expanded to the Israelites. And we got through part of God's rule and his blessing. And that comes through the law. Particularly the law that we saw at Mount Sinai. But specifically, remember, we zoomed in on God's presence. God's presence flooded into the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And God is once again among his people, just like in Eden. But a holy God can't live with a sinful people without blood. And so we saw the establishment of the sacrificial system. God's way, God's means for maintaining relationship with Israel. So tonight we're going to zoom in on two parts of this second column, the partial kingdom. That's God's place, and then we're going to talk about God's rule, specifically his king. His king, because it's a major theme in the Bible. Okay, so let's, everybody with me so far? That's kind of a detailed but fast, we're covering lots of ground, aren't we? I guess that's the big story concept. All right, so we're talking tonight about God's place. And we're, we're, we're simplifying this by saying this covers numbers through Joshua. All right? Now remember, the promise that we're talking about is that in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I am going to give your offspring a land. Now, we are going to see the partial fulfillment of this. Now we have a people. Remember, there are millions that left Egypt and they're now into the wilderness. They now have a law. They now have God in their midst. So there's a, there's a legitimate people. But you can't be a people without a land, right? You can't be a nation if, you don't, if you're a refugee. There are people without a land. And so this next big section focuses on Israel's entrance into the promised land. We start in the book of Numbers. 
In the book of Numbers, you could, hide, you could categorize this as disobedience and delay. After Israel's detour, they, remember they detoured in the wilderness to meet God on Mount Sinai. They are now ready to go into the promised land. And you would think that this would only take a short amount of time, right? They may, I don't know, months, weeks, days, I don't know. But there are delays ahead. This group of former slaves walked out of Egypt, right? Do you remember? They walked out billionaires. They plundered. Uh, this is hilarious. They, when they were leaving Egypt, they asked the Egyptians for all their money and they gave it to them, right? That only works if God is with you or if you have a really, really big stick. And they didn't have any big sticks, all right? They were, they were, they were slaves leaving, leaving Egypt, but they, they plundered the Egyptians and then God led them out. So this beginning, this group of slaves is starting to look like an army. And they had a secret weapon. God marched before them in a cloud. You remember? God went before his people in a cloud, which means they're guaranteed victory, right? Who's going to beat God? You can't beat God. And they had God walking before them in a cloud. And so we expect this to be a quick conquering of the promised land. But you know the story. That's not how it went. The Israelites like onions. Yep, that's what I said. They like leeks. And so they started to grumble, right? They grumbled about the food and they grumbled about the leadership. And eventually we see them full of unbelief. In Canaan, as they get ready to come into Canaan, they say, this doesn't work, right? We had it better in Egypt. We had it better in Egypt. When they came in Numbers chapter 13 to the edge of Canaan, we've been talking about this on Wednesday nights, the spies came back saying what? This is a land flowing with milk and honey just like God said it would be. But there's a big problem. There's all these giants in the land. They're giants here. And so the people freak out and they say, we'd rather be back in Egypt where there are no giants and there are lots of onions and Moses is in another country. And so we see the people of God falter. Joshua and Caleb are the two spies who do not rebel, and they plead with the people, saying what? Numbers chapter 14, verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Again, that's that key, that key phrase. God is with his people, right? God is among his people. And you're, when you're with God, when you're in his place, when you're under his rule, you have blessing and protection. But they don't buy it. Despite all that they had seen, despite the parting of the Red Sea, despite the ten plagues, despite water from a rock, despite quail that hovered over the ground so they could have meat, they did not trust the Lord. And God judged them. So we see death and delay. God kills every single one of that unbelieving generation. Within 40 years, God kills all of them. If you are tempted to think that your sin is not a big deal, remember the wrath of God. God kills every single one of his people, save a few who trusted him. And we saw how... 
a whole generation fell in the wilderness. When you disobey God's rule, you're not under his blessing. And it leads to curses and death. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, reminds us of this, these events. Do you remember this passage in 1 Corinthians 10? Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. I just want to meditate on that briefly. Just, just think about what had taken place. I know we're going at a really high level. This is a 30,000 foot view. But think of all that Israel had seen. And think about how they disobeyed the Lord. What have you and I seen? What have we experienced from the gracious, saving hand of God? And how weak is our faith? Think about specifically, we too have been set free from slavery. Israel had walked out of bondage. We have been set free from the slavery of sin. Israel had been provided a Passover sacrifice, a lamb, so that the angel of death would not wipe them out. And yet we too have been provided a greater lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God. We too, like Israel, have been set on a journey towards the promised land. Not, not, not Canaan, not even Israel, but heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. And so church, we must be on guard not to fall into sin and unbelief, just like Israel did. We too must trust God until we reach our destination. I wonder what areas you are struggling to trust the Lord in. It is so easy to look on Israel and think, what idiots? Like, why would they do that? I mean, just again and again, it just, sin seems so stupid from, from, from this perspective, doesn't it? Well, our job in faith is to look into the future and see the stupidity of sin and walk in faith, right? Let Israel be a lesson for us. There's so many haunting things. One of the verses I memorized, you shall not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. That's how God treated Israel. We must be a people of purity. That's numbers. God's, we're still working on trying to figure out how God's place, right? Then we come to Deuteronomy. I'm going to skip a little bit. Uh, we're coming to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, we see the continuation of God giving his people the place. After wandering in the wilderness for, for 40 years, we get to the edge of the promised land. And Moses was not permitted to enter it, right? And all the great things that Moses did, Moses also was a sinner, and so he stood on the edge of the promised land, and like any good man, he gave a quick little sermon. Ask my family about that. On I try not to give sermons on vacation. All right, Moses gives one final sermon before he dies, and in this final speech, he pleads with them to remember what the Lord has done. Part of that sermon is he reminds them to live according to their identity. That, that they are God's people, and since they're God's people, they should live like God's people. Does that sound familiar? Have you read Ephesians? <laughs> Have you read the epistles? They are God's people, so live like God's people. Live according to your new identity as you go into the promised land. I won't have time to... Oh, I'll read this text. All right. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured 
possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose Israel. They have the identity of being his, his treasured possession. Deuteronomy chapter 10, he goes on to say, it was a long sermon, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. One of the key things that we see in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, if you, if you write down a phrase for it, would be the book of blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. If you obey, you enjoy blessing. And if you disobey, you experience curses, right? That's what we, that's what we see and experience. Um, if, you've got, if you have your Bible, let me just show this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Look at 28 verse 1. Moses is telling the people, if, if, right, that's conditional, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all of the nations of the earth. And he goes on to list out all of the blessings and all of the benefits that come with obedience. But then look down at verse 15. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then in the following verses, we read over and over and over again of the curses that come from disobeying. The key one to notice, I think, is in verse 63, at least for our purposes. This is, this is one of the curses. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, he's saying if you disobey, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off of the land that you are entering into to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you. What's that make you think of? Babel, right? The Lord will, or, or Eden, being sent out of Eden. Or Cain, being sent away, right? will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods of wood and of stone. What's he saying? He's saying that if you disobey, you'll be out of God's place. I will evict you. I will evict you from God's place. And if you know the, you know the history of Israel, what happens? They're evicted, right? We'll see that tonight. But the question is, at this point in the text, is what is Israel going to do? How are they going to live? Are they going to obey? Right? Choose. Are they going to choose life that they might live? Or are they going to choose death and curses? Will they be able to keep the covenant? I wish I could teach all this again and, and highlight the covenants more clearly. Maybe I'll do that next year or something. But they are, God is entering into covenant with his people. And he's saying that if you obey, you will enjoy these blessings. But if you fail to obey, you will experience curse. All throughout the Bible, we see God looking for a faithful, covenant-keeping son. 
And he never found it in Israel until the son of David, right? In order to keep the covenant with God, God had to come himself to get the job done. We'll talk about that some other time. Then we come to the book of, oh, disobedience means curse. Then we come to the book of Joshua. We're still trying to figure out the place component of this. In Joshua, Moses is succeeded by Joshua. And they finally enter in to the land of Canaan. And the book of Joshua begins with what? Joshua fought the battle of... Alright, that's wrong. God fought the battle of Jericho. Joshua walked in a circle, right? Like, I want to rewrite that song. I mean, uh, they got it right. The walls came tumbling down, but Joshua didn't really do much fighting. He didn't do do any fighting, right? That's, That's how it worked. At the very beginning of the conquest, what is God making clear? I don't need you. I don't need you. Walk in a circle and I win, right? Can you think of a more clear way for God to make his point? I mean, how many times do they walk? Like, over, I'm, I'm convinced that's like, hello, you don't need, I don't need you, just keep walking in a circle, right? It's like, go over there and play, I'll take care of business. God is reminding them, I don't need you to do this. I'm the hero. I am going to do this. God gets the credit. It's very clear that the people of Israel did not win the victory. They're powerless, but God is mighty. You are powerless in salvation, but God is mighty. He will save. The text goes on to talk about how God gives them a command to drive out after Jericho, right? After the walls come tumbling down. After Jericho, God gives them the command, drive out all the nations among you. I mean, kill them all. This is a big stumbling block for, for many folks, but uh, the, the picture is that God is produ- he's bringing judgment on the nations, which God has every right to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, he gives an explanation. He says, I think it's interesting. I was meditating on this today. Look at this text if you can see it. He says, it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, Right? So God's saying, kill them all, but he's saying, he explains, it's because of their wickedness, right? God brings judgment on sinners. They were idolaters, they were immoral, they committed child sacrifice, but more importantly, we see that they are going to be a corrupting influence, and that's exactly what happens. Israel fails to drive out the people of the land, and that ends up bringing despair and destruction, especially with Solomon and his wives. But look how this text goes on. He makes it clear. It's not because of your righteousness, right? So he says, it's because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord's driving them out before you. But then he says, before you feel all good about yourself, it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess this land. You're no better than them. I could have destroyed you. (laughs) Isn't that what this text reminds us of? But it's because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out so that he can keep his promise, so he can confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The book of Joshua ends on a high note. In verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 43, look how clear of a statement this is. This helps us see the main thing that Joshua is doing. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. 
What, what just happened? God just kept his promise. He said, I'm going to give you a land. Joshua 21 is the fulfillment of that promise. He kept, God keeps his promises. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. If God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. Not one word of the Lord will fail. They will all come to pass. We live in a shadow. We live in a time, like all of the people before us, where many of God's promises are not realized yet. We can't see them. So we have to trust them. But we can expect that they will all come to pass. Thousands and millions of families in Israel died before they saw the promise of God fulfilled in the land. But he still kept his promise. God always keeps his promises. But just as Joshua ends on a high note, it also ends with a strong word of caution. Actually, let me go back and make one more point about this. I'm sorry. Um, okay, yeah, I don't know what verse this is. It says, uh, notice, and the Lord gave them rest on every side. Do you remember how we talked about rest? Think about, remember, we're saying that the Garden of Eden is the pattern of the kingdom. On the day seven, what does God do? He rests. When did he stop resting? He, 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 since, okay, so he worked day one, two, three, four, five, six. Day seven, he entered into his rest. Do you remember what we said? It didn't end. God continues in his rest because rest is the purpose for his people, right? You remember how we talked about that? We talked about that with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the reminder that God's calling us to enter into rest with him, which is why Jesus said, come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Well, that's part of the picture that we're getting here. God gave rest to the people in Israel. That's the purpose for mankind, resting with God. All right. Um, Oh, let's go back here. I'll do this quickly. We end with a word of caution in in Joshua 23. Just like Moses, Joshua reminds the people to fear God and obey his law. And he reminds them that if they do not, it says that last sentence, you will perish off the good ground the Lord your God has given you. Right? He's saying don't intermarry, don't turn away from the word of the Lord, because if you disobey, you will be expelled from the land. So the book of Joshua ends again like Deuteronomy did. Are the people going to obey? Are they going to keep covenant with the Lord? Will they be able to stay in the land? Well, now we move on to God's king. We could say judges. This is judges through Second Chronicles. And can't you... Didn't it, didn't it make you excited to when we're going to get to the king of kings, right? The revelation, the king of kings. Okay, so we've got a couple promises here. Uh, this is a little bit different. If you have your chart, we're trying to fit. This, is, this goes under the God's rule and blessing. Because the idea of a king is established, I think it actually is implied, at least in Genesis 3.15. The crushing of the serpent's head, right? God promises that a son of Eve or a seed from Eve will crush the serpent's head. That means he's a conqueror. Well, what's a conqueror? Well, that's kingly, right? 
But it's more specific. We saw in Genesis 49 that the scepter, right, the king's stick will not depart from Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, right? So there's a promise of a king here, but then we get even more specific in Deuteronomy 17. Well, we've, uh, we've talked about this in Samuel because Samuel is the more detailed unfolding of how this works. But the key thing to notice here is that in Deuteronomy 17, God says, I'm going to put a king in Israel before they get into the land. Right? Deuteronomy is written before they're in the land. So he's saying that I'm going to put a king in Israel. They will be governed by a king. And this text describes what that king is going to be like. When you come to the land the Lord your God's giving you, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And it goes on to say, I've had to summarize some of this. He, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book, a copy of the law, right? The Torah. That's how you experience God's blessing. Approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. So what is this king going to be like? He's not like a king from the nations. He's a king that is obsessed with the law of God. He is a ruler who is ruled. He is a mini king under the king. Do you see? That's what the king is going to be like. Well, as we move into, well, let's put it like this. Um, God's intention is for his kingdom to be ruled by a king. His kingdom will be ruled by a king. I think that we should think of the promise of a king as the narrowing of how God is going to fulfill his promises. He, he starts really narrow with just Abraham. Well, he starts with Adam. That didn't work. Starts with Noah. That didn't work. Goes to Abraham. And it's not that God fails. God is narrowing and broadening. And he gets to Abraham. And then it starts to get bigger with Isaac. And then bigger with Jacob. And then big with the 12 sons, right? And Joseph. And then it gets like really big because there's millions of them. And all of a sudden we see it zooming back into one king. The head, right? The, the federal head of Israel. And so that's what's going on with, with the king. And we, so, so we're seeing partial fulfillment of this starting in Judges, right? We're all very familiar with the sin cycle. In Judges, we read of the early years of the promised land. And how is it? Are they obeying the law? New, right? It is chaos. It is complete chaos. If you read Judges, you feel like you need to take a bath. It is so filthy and dirty because of the things that the people of God are doing. The people do not heed the warnings of Joshua or Moses or Caleb, and they rebel against God's rule. And so we come to this famous sin cycle of where they turn away from God, they serve other gods. So God judges them and allows them to be defeated by their enemies. Well, when they're defeated, they cry out for help. So God sends a judge, which I like to think of as a mini-savior. A mini-savior. That mini-savior comes and defeats the enemies of God, always in the power of God's Spirit. Remember Jericho. And then they restore temporary peace. And then once they get into the temporary peace, what do they do? Start the cycle all over again. And in the book of Judges, we get some pretty interesting 
characters, but we should notice that the judges are a sign of God's grace. God delivers his people. Didn't have to, right? But remember that bow. God is committed to living with sinners, but he can't leave it the way it is. The judges clearly are not an adequate solution. They're clearly not an adequate solution. This is not a long-term arrangement, right? We uh, so often misunderstand the judges, right? Jephthah kills his own daughter. Think about Samson. He's the playboy thug, right? I don't see many people who name their kids Samson, right? So, you see, so often we miss the point. The judges are not heroes. They're broken, And I think the book of Judges specifically is designed to leave us longing for a way better Samson. Not a pervert, but one who can be strong and drive out our enemies and protect Israel, but who walks with God. Unlike Jephthah. More like Gideon, but not so much a coward, right? More like Samson, but not so much a pervert. More like Jephthah, but not murderous. That's why the book of Judges ends with the phrase it repeats four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There wasn't a king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So then we come to the book of Samuel. Man, what happened to my slides here? Okay, here we go. What are y'all seeing? Sorry. All right. Then we come to the book of Samuel. And you could call this a false start, right? Samuel is the last judge, and he's the greatest judge of all the judges. He's, he's the guy that we might think, maybe this is the seed. But you remember he had some sons, and they weren't, they, they, they weren't good, kind of like uh, Eli. So it's, it's not him, and, and he dies. That's a big problem. Um, so there's a good judge, but Israel rejects him. And they reject God. They want a king, specifically a king like the nations, which is specifically a rejection of God. The problem is not that they wanted a king. It was that they wanted a king like the nations. Well, the, na- the kings of the nations don't love the Torah. They don't write, it, write an own, their own copy and read it every day. Well, that's what God intended for his people. But God gives in. He gives them what they want, as he often does in judgment. And they get Saul. Well, Saul proves, if you are walking through Samuel with us on Wednesday nights, that he's unable to obey obey God. So the people are not blessed. God rejects Saul, and David is anointed halfway through 1 Samuel. And then we come, I'll I'll go quickly through this. When we come to the book of 2 Samuel, this this is the big king book, especially 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel, we see Israel finally has the king. They finally have the the king who actually has a man after God's own heart. Saul's heart was divided. He was apostate. So we finally get David, a man after God's own heart. He certainly wasn't perfect, right? We, We all know the famous stories of David's misadventures. He's not perfect, so they don't enjoy all the blessing of God. But remember, David is from Judah, well, do you remember that specific promise to Judah? A king's going to come from you. And it's really interesting. We'll come to this at some point in, in Samuel. At, at first, Judah, the tribe of Judah, were the, was the only one that accepted David as the king, right? The king is going to come from Judah. God is fulfilling his promise in David. 
He's from Judah. And what this king does, he does some really important things. He establishes the city of God. The city of David, right? What should you call it? The city of God or the city of David? Yes, right? He establishes the city of God. He secures all the borders in Israel. The land enjoys peace and incredible prosperity. He brings back the Ark of the Covenant. Doesn't go well for Uzzah, but he brings back the Ark of the Covenant. And so God is once again in his place among his people, and the king is on the throne. Well, it seems like all the promises are are coming true. It seems like it's all coming into place. Israel has never enjoyed so much peace, never enjoyed so much prosperity. But this is still not the ultimate fulfillment. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read of the Davidic covenant, which is very important. I wish I had more time to, to spend on this. But in this covenant, 2 Samuel 7 God underlines the promise he made to Abraham. He, he, he extends it and broadens it and clarifies it. Part of what he does, and especially in verses 11 through 16, is that he promises that a future king will come that's greater than David. Do you remember this promise? We have time? Let's read it. Don't take my word for it. 2 Samuel chapter 7. is so interesting. I remember the first time I read this and it perplexed me so much. Let's just start in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest, there it is again, from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Remember, David wanted to build the temple, right? He wants to build God a house. And what's God say? No, 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 no. I'm going to make you a house, right? And what's he talking about? Oh, he gets big, doesn't it? Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so far it's like, all right, yeah, it's Solomon, right? This makes sense. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, that's a long time. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, so there's a lot of things that are going, going on here. As you read this text, you think about David's son, Solomon, who comes in and fulfills many of these promises. But especially when you think about verse 14, one of these verses doesn't seem to fit quite the same way. Verse 14 talks about when he does wrong, God will punish him. There's much to say here, but I think that we could just say this. There are many Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in different levels. Uh, 
Because this has us looking ahead to that, f- that, that eternal king, right? Because he's saying your kingdom's going to be forever, right? And so we're looking ahead to even Jesus who was punished, not for his wrongs, but for the wrongs of his people. We get the partial fulfillment with Solomon, right? So in other words, what I'm saying is that this text is fulfilled in Solomon, but it's also fulfilled in Christ, so looking ahead to Christ, who is the king. Because Solomon died. He's, Solomon's not on the throne in Israel. Right? He's not ruling. He's dead. Jesus is on the throne. We get partial fulfillment with this when Solomon builds a temple. Right? He builds a house for the Lord. And God is building a house for David. But ultimately, let's turn over to Luke, 30, Luke 11. Let's see how this works. Because I don't think I explained that very well. Let's just read this. Luke eleven thirty one. So this is Jesus talking about the sign of Jonah. And then he says, he's talking about the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Okay, so he's talking about the queen of Sheba who came and saw all the incredible wealth that God had given Israel. And he said, for she came from the, oh, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then he says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, I'm here. I am the greater Davidic king. So this leaves us longing for the greater king. From 2 Samuel onward, all throughout the Bible, we are awaiting the arrival of God's eternal king, the son of David. This is why the gospel writers make such a big deal about genealogies, to show this is the son of David. This is the 2 Samuel 7 promise fulfiller. We move now, and I'll bring this to a close rather quickly. In 1 Kings chapter 1-11, through 11, you could call this the golden age of Israel, right? So Solomon is David's son, and he comes, and he's, man, he's great. I'm reading this in my personal Bible reading right now I'm in, for, in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And man, things are going great. He seems to be a Torah kind of guy. He seems to, he wants God's wisdom, and God blesses him even more than he blessed David. In the golden age, we see Solomon ruling wisely. And he brings unprecedented security and prosperity to the land. When they talk about the gold in Israel, they talk about it in tons. We measure gold in ounces. In God's city, they measure gold in tons. Solomon built the temple, the permanent symbolic dwelling place for God. This is the pinnacle, I think, of the Old Testament. It looks like in 1 Kings that all of God's promises have been fulfilled. In 1 Kings, when when Solomon's praying at the temple, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people. According to all that he has promised, not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Look over at 1 Kings 4. I promise I'm wrapping up here in a minute. But I think that I, I learned this new. This is so. This is so cool to see this. At First Kings four, starting in verse twenty, we really get this picture of how 
of how God has fulfilled his promises. Look down. So in verse 20, it talks about the people in Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Do you remember God's promise to Abraham? I'm going to give you as many children as the stars in the sky. Right? He's going to the same. I stood on the, I stood on the sand and looked at the stars and told Karis about this promise. I said, hey, do you want to try to name some of the stars? So there are now two stars, one named Marshmallow and one named White Sheep. Right? God has names for all of them, and he has names for all of his children. The promises of God are huge. So verse 20, okay, God's fulfilled his promise. He's going to make, he's going to give descendants as numerous as the stars or the sand on the seashore. Look down at verse 21. Uh, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt, right? In other words, they're in the land. They are in God's place. Verse 21. Then look down at verse 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. In other words, they enjoyed God's blessing. Right? When you live under God's rule, you enjoy God's blessing. From Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And then it talks about the stupendous wealth that God gives to his people eventually. So everything looks good. But as you know, and we'll have to cut it short here, and I guess I'll pick up on this next week. It looks like everything is fulfilled. It looks like it's all done, that God has finished all of it. But halfway through Solomon's life, what happens? Everything falls apart. God's man isn't faithful. He isn't faithful. Right in the middle of his life, things start to fall apart. And then in 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings 25, we read about how the people of Israel are destroyed. They are separated. God's people is divided. Right? That's why there's two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Solomon is led astray by foreign lives, wives, and the kingdom disintegrates. What in the world is God doing? And more, what do we do with all these promises now? He's fulfilled them all. So what do we do? We'll pick up on that later. So here's the chart so far. There it is in full. But here it is so far. We finally filled in this column. God's people are the Israelites. God's place is Canaan. It's also Jerusalem and the temple, right? But that's all inside of Canaan. And then we see God's blessing and God's rule. Well, that's the law and the king, as we have discussed tonight. Sorry I went a minute and 25 seconds late. I will be here for questions afterwards if you have any questions. I know we're covering a lot. But let me close this in prayer and, and I'll dis- dismiss, dismiss us. Father, we thank you. We just marvel to see how you sorted all this out. No human could make this up. No group of religious fanatics could come up with this story. Your word is true and we marvel at it. Help us to find security in knowing that there is a story a big story that you were writing and you've by your grace brought us into it. Not because we're good, not because we're better than the nations, but because of your sheer electing sovereign grace. And Lord, we know and we look ahead and thank you for how Christ took on the curses of obedience that we, disobedience that we deserve. And we give you praise and we submit to him our king forever. Be with us as we leave this place tonight. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for being here, Trip. Dismissed.